Welcome to this new thinking for a new world podcast of the Talberg Foundation. Are we capable of fixing all that is breaking, or is it too late? In this episode, host Alan Stoga leads Juan Enriquez, one of the world's leading authorities on the economic and political impact of life science technology, and Fiorenzo Omanetto, who works at the cutting edge of living materials engineering, on a search for the upside of the global miss. We are almost halfway through what, by any definition, is proving to be the most interesting and probably the worst year of our time. Global pandemic, economic catastrophe, deep social stress and suffering, violence, governments gathering and in some cases abusing unprecedented power, leaders failing right and left. It's been a bad year. In the face of all of this, the entire post-war framework, and more importantly, our societies look fragile. You guys surprised? Juan? No, I don't think so. I think, you know, coronavirus, for the most part, has been an accelerant, not a break. And so what it's done is it's taken a whole series of trends that were already there and a whole series of positive and negative movements and just accelerated the hell out of them. Um, and so it's laid bare the extraordinary inequalities that already existed, but on the other hand, it's pushed technology faster than anybody thought it could possibly be pushed. And, and you have this very weird barbell effect where on the one hand, there are sectors of society that have never been as productive before. And there's, whole sectors of society that were being gradually marginalized that have now just been, you know, burned and excluded. Um, and it's accentuated those divisions. Phil, what surprised you, if anything, about how fragile everything feels and appears? Well, I, I don't know necessarily that it was surprise. Uh, I think, uh, I think I'm disoriented a little bit because because it's a confluence it's really a confluence of effects there's multiple things that are happening at the same time and my observation was that that this particular moment has been an amplifier of emotions as uh, as was said as was said before you know trends that were there accelerated but certainly also also a lot of the um of the mo's of people involved have been amplified to the extreme which brings really to bear a lot of the uh a lot of the unstable equilibrium that we have been teetering on for some time and we tend to look really more at the visceral emotions so we tend to focus a lot on on things that are going bad, well, I mean, how could you not in a in a pandemic uh, in in pandemic times, right? And when economic downturn and stress and, and racism and so on and so forth, but you know, the eternal optimist in me always thinks about the amplifier of good emotions. I think that I think there is uh, to me uh, to me you're disoriented, but then you tend to try to react and try to find ways ways to action, and so. I wasn't completely surprised because I thought that we were we were doing a complex dance, a complex social dance to begin with, to uh, to put it mildly. But um, but I am I still remain in face of all the you know 
of all the abuse and violence and uh, and disease, I still remain very hopeful that the same amplifier of emotions is going to lead us lead us out of this with uh, with opportunity. Let me ask you both about one word you just used, Fio, which is we. There is a sense about the moment that we're all in this together. That is to say, by definition, a pandemic has the potential to infect anyone. The flip side, and Juan already touched on it, is that it's not really true. It does have the potential to hit anyone, but those with means are able to protect themselves much better. And we've seen from the, from the death rates, the best way to die of, in this pandemic is to be old, uh, to be black, to be poor. And that's not just in the United States, that's across the world. And I want to keep this a global conversation. So let's talk about we. Is there a we? So, you know, one of the things that a lot of countries have been doing for the last century is redefining their borders. So three quarters of the flags, borders, and anthems in this world were not at the United Nations a century ago. And country after country is having debates amidst its citizen shareholders. Do we really belong to this national project? And so you've watched, you know, the Balkans become a series of different countries, but you've also watched this debate play out across Canada. You've watched this debate play out across the Basques, the Catalans, the Northern Italians, uh, Corsica, uh, Scotland, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and so that question of we gets accentuated in a pandemic, precisely because of the um, dynamics which you're you're talking about. Where, on the one hand, societies are being ripped apart in those who are white collar remote workers and those who are quote-unquote, essential workers who still have to be exposed every day and those who now are not workers. And, and you have these, you know, enormous buckets of society that are experiencing a completely different pandemic. And you're layering that on top of a political system that was already thriving on spending billions of dollars dividing people, convincing 51% of the country in the United States and in Britain and in a series of other places that you're not like the others, that you belong to this tribe and you shouldn't even talk to that tribe. You should never identify with that tribe. You should never be a part of that tribe. Everything that tribe does from wearing face masks or not wearing face masks or accepting X or Y belief vis-a-vis people who are religious or people who are gay or people who are X or Y, this, this division has just been brutalized and accentuated and magnified by the non-we of this pandemic. Well, and I can add to that that it's particularly jarring uh, because because we is what we need to get out of this. Uh, and this is probably one of the most um, challenging aspects of, of the transition between a pre-COVID world and a, 
and where we are right now. Uh, we have lived with the illusion of being global. Uh, and I think that it's important to come and think about and think about how, how do we cooperate? How do we redesign cooperation between all of these factions to save ourselves in these types of, in these types of circumstances? I'm going to push back really hard on that and then ask Want his view, because you used the word we again. I see very little evidence anywhere that there is a push towards global solutions for almost anything. We three are card-carrying members of the global elite, and most of our friends are card-carrying members of that elite and believe firmly in global solutions. But I think we're a minority of a minority of a minority. Who's going to make the case? Where are they going to make it? And how are they going to carry that global flag that, Theo, you want to see raised once again? One? We're in a very strange period because people don't understand as ethics change. And they change over time. So when I was brought up in Mexico in a Jesuit school, the preacher, the teacher, my peers, my parents, the newspapers, the laws, everybody told me one of the worst things you could possibly be is to be gay. And when you look at the Gallup polls of how quickly that perception changed and how quickly you could end up from something that you were taught as a child as an absolute truth to if you're on the opposite side, you are you know, an ignorant bigot and your business should be shut down. Part of what's happening is we're, we're whipsawing societies at a rate we've never seen before. And technology has an enormous amount to do with it. We are creatures who think in linear terms. Technology thinks in geometric terms. So let's come back to your point about we. We have the ability to do things that no other society and civilization has ever done before. It's fundamentally changed the rules of economics. The rules of economics are let's administer and figure out how to deal with scarce resources. And all of a sudden we're in a world where we have an excess of calories and it's not an availability problem, it's a distribution problem. And all of a sudden we have an excess of the ability to produce bicycles and we have an excess of the ability to produce energy and we have an excess of the ability to produce X, Y, or Z. And so we could easily give everybody on this earth basic health care, basic vaccines, basic nutrition, basic antibiotics, and a roof to live under. And instead, what we've done is we've concentrated 50% of the world's worth in 14 hands. And so when you ask the question of we, you know, you get back to that, you know, who is we and why aren't we acting as we? And the stakes because of technology, are incredibly high. Because what you're seeing is if we don't start to act on climate change, it's game over. If we don't start to act on weapons of mass destruction, which are becoming decentralized and DIY, it's over. If we don't start to act on let's not leave big chunks of the world behind because a wall's not going to stop a pandemic – it's game over. So on the one hand, we have the instruments. On the other hand, the stakes have never been higher if we don't act as we. 
Theo, you are an engineer. You make things and you look at problems. How do you, as someone who is very much about solving problems, how, how do you start solving this problem? Well, uh, you know, it's it's interesting to, to to ride the wave of this discussion, right? And, and if I think about solutions, so if I think about how to um, to make a dent in uh, in the current situation with uh, with some uh, some actionable, you know, diagnostic uh, job creation, uh, new technology. Uh, sustainable, uh, sustainable path to help save our planet or, uh, or whatever. There are still two, uh, two aspects to this. There's the technological innovation aspect, which is something, which is something that is born in a lab and stays in the lab and is demonstrated in the lab and has, has its own sphere of influence. And then there is adoption. There is adoption and propagation of this technology. And then there is, uh, and, and when it spreads, to when it spreads to the world. And that's when you start weaving what you do into the social fabric and then, and then you start making an impact. These two things sometimes are, these two things are sometimes disconnected and there's a, and there's a bridge between one and the other that involves non-technical aspects. Uh, you start with discovery, you engineer a solution, and then you go for adoption and adoption then becomes uh, then becomes socially accepted through regulation, through policy, through, uh, through distribution channels. And I think, and I think these are some of the things, some of the things that come, uh, that I think about, uh, that I think about in terms of, in terms of trying, uh, in terms of what's next in order to do good, in order to find, uh, to find a diagnostic, a vaccine, a sustainable process that will save the planet, that will reduce our carbon footprint in order to provide opportunities to people where that traditionally did not have opportunities and create new markets, new jobs, and, and a new, a new path towards wealth and welfare. Um, you have to go beyond the lab and you have to enter into, you have to, you have to enter into, um, into the, into the social and political fabric of today's economics. And these are the things that I, that I think are tremendous challenges, tremendous opportunities and, uh, and have also the highest barriers to entry because, uh, because we haven't defined a we. The engineer, the scientist, the innovator as activist. Uh, we've seen in the, discussion of health policy for the first time in many years, scientists standing next to presidents and prime ministers, and even in some cases making decisions. You're talking, I think, about a model of leadership which is got to change. So I think one of the interesting things you're seeing is just this almost extraordinary real-time grading it's almost like an SAT for leadership. When you look at the curve of where the entire European Union is versus where the United States is, that is just a weekly quiz on a failure of leadership. And I think one of the things that you're going to see that you know could lead to we is this is really hurting 
every international business on a massive scale. And you're going to hear more and more business leaders whose job it is not to lead countries, it's not to find public policies, suddenly figure out, oh my God, if I just let this go and I don't get involved, it is just going to destroy everything that I've built. Um, this this whole concept of I can build a medieval city and a medieval city works and I don't really need you know the region around it and I don't really need the country around it and I don't really need the rest of the world. That didn't work back then and it doesn't work today. And we are going to see value destruction events the likes of which we have never seen if we don't get this leadership gap and these dunces who are getting D's every week or F's every week to act in a different way. Let's drill down on the United States. You both have the opportunity to look at the states as people who live here, but as people who aren't from here. Uh, Mexico, Italy, respectively. What do you think all in the future is? Well... I guess I guess I've always seen seen America as a as an exceptional place and that did things uh, exceptionally. So when there's a crisis, it's an exceptional crisis as well. I tend to be always always optimistic. I always I always think that we hear a lot about the bad, but uh, but I think that if uh, if I go by my theory that that these trying times have amplified emotions and they've amplified attitudes i think that they are also amplifying good attitudes as well um and so i am i am still hopeful in in an exceptional recovery now i know that this may sound a little bit naive but um but i don't think uh i don't think it's completely out of the question um i don't think it's going to be smooth sailing. I think that some of the things that Juan alluded to are stand in the way uh, and uh, and may may prove to be may prove to be very, very large obstacles to overcome. Uh, however, I, I don't know. I think I think it's still at the risk of sounding naive and romantic, I still think that there is an attitude of uh, of defiance in the face of danger that takes on very troubling aspects sometimes for people that go out in public and defy a virus by not wearing a mask, for example. But there, uh, but there is, but there is that same fearlessness in also trying to trying to resurrect something that seems to have no pulse, and that is what I'm hoping for, quite frankly. So, look back in 2005. I was very worried about some of the trends in the United States because I was watching great countries fall apart. And so let me start from the premise. It would be a disaster, not just for the United States, but for the world if the United States fell apart and didn't recover, you know, a a leadership position that has certainly had its flaws this has been a beacon for so many people. It's been a beacon for some of the smartest minds in the world. It's been a beacon of entrepreneurship. It's been a beacon of eventual acceptance of some immigrants. It's getting 
I think, better decade by decade. And boy, that is a hard statement to make right now. But when I think about, you know, some of the most controversial stuff even going on today with the protests with Black Lives Matter, and I think, okay, would the average minority be better off if you had a time machine and you plopped them down in the 1960s or you plopped them down in the 1940s or you plopped them down in the 1920s or you plopped them down in the 1850s? The answer is no. You know, there are horrible things going on. There is stuff which is inexcusable going on. But the resources that you have with every cell phone becoming a broadcast station, with the ability to reach a million people about the plight of an individual, are resources that we just never had before. And so, again, technology changes our notion of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. So at the risk of angering a lot of activists, the United States is seriously flawed it's going down the wrong path, but on the whole, if you had to bet $10,000 and not touch it for the next 30 years and just put it into an ETF in a country, I would probably put that you know, for my grandkids in a U.S. ETF because I think this country will come back. I think this country does have values that get strained, that get pulled, that gets folded, spindled, and mutilated. But I also think the arc of history has taken this place and will reverse the 42% drop in visas for foreign students because they're the fuel for, you know, the energy of this country in waves of Finns and Germans and Irish and Italians and Mexicans. You know, that's what's made this country great. And it's that ability to attract, to serve as a model, that the rest of the world is kind of looking in despair at where the hell did you guys go? That's the fuel for we. Yeah, we are stronger together. We are not stronger if we beat some other people, if some people are poor, if some people don't get health care, if people don't have housing, if people are angry. We are not stronger because we hurt other people. And, and that bullying, nasty, evil undercurrent that sometimes comes out of the United States, it's, it's a dark undercurrent, but it's not the whole country, and it's certainly not we. To inject a historical note, empires do overextend and decline. That is the great arc of history. It's possible that we, the United States, have reached our limit that we lost that spark that you talked about and that ability to integrate and make something more from than than the, than the than the body politic might otherwise have achieved Theo, why is that wrong uh i think the as much as we try to build walls and we try to uh and we try to seek comfort locally um technology has uh, has made us global, whether we like it or not. And, uh, and this is, this did not exist in the Chinese empire, the Roman empire, uh, the British empire. 
uh, you are, and we have grown, we are grown very dependent on one another uh, globally. And so, so taking, taking if, and I would argue that the United States is at the center, uh, is the epicenter of this revolution, whether, whether we like it or not, and has enabled a lot of this, uh, of this connectivity. And, uh, and it's, it redefines who we are. It redefines the way, the way that we think, that we report, that we relate, that we, uh, uh, that we come together with, uh, ethical values or ethical or ethical disagreements. Um, so I think we redefine maybe what, uh, what the identity of, uh, the identity of a nation is. But I don't think that it's, <laughs> I don't think that it's a localized decline. You know, an empire falls and another one rises. I think that if, uh, I think that if an empire, to, to echo a little bit of what Juan was saying, if, uh, if the United States goes into a tailspin, the world is, the world is following, is following in step because, because the system is very, very symbiotic. And so it's going to be a global search for for a new balance point i would i would argue to go for full circle to where we started this is the first truly global challenge to the hyper global period arguably we're failing it spectacularly and sometimes failure is the seeds for future success well you know i think the success i can give a technological like i can give a, a a silly technological analogy you know if when uh, when technology is successful you forget about it right it weaves itself in the fabric of your life and you just forget about it and taking things for granted always uh always moves your moves your center of thought in in a different in a in a different context and that may be good or it may be or it may be not so good if you if you forget why why and how you got to the place that you that that you got to so so forgetting that your car forgetting that your car has has a dipstick means that at a certain point once you take it for granted that your car doesn't work anymore then you're forced to think again about how an engine works it may be this moment uh, maybe this moment is how is we think we are forced to think about how our systems work, how our ethics uh, values have been defined, how uh, how the society that we live in that we might have taken for granted in some cases conveniently because we don't perceive the injustice that that exists in other uh, in other parts of society uh, are then then here we are now questioning. This is questioning how how our car works, and so I think I think it's a positive thing. I think you you learn again, and you build it better. What have you most missed during the lockdown, Juan? So I think just being able to exchange ideas with people you care about. Um, it's not the same if you're sitting across the table from somebody and you're touching them or you're smelling them or you're just, you know, the, the feeling of an abrazo or a human contact or something like that is 
it's just so incredibly important. We are all social apes and we like to live in tribes and we like to share stories and share drinks and share food and share ideas. And, you know, you can't do that in the same way across Zoom. Theo? Uh, I am in lockstep with Juan. I miss people. I miss, uh, I miss being able to look at them, uh, look at them in the eye. I miss being able to see, to see body language. <laughs> I miss, uh, uh, I, I just miss the energy that comes from seeing, from seeing people move and people do the things that they do. We'll come back to this in a couple months. We'll see whether this is an inflection point or a speed bump. Well, you know, this experiment could go really, really horribly wrong. This social experiment that we've that was forced upon us by by a virus. There's also this thing that it might be spectacularly right. I remember distinctly in conversations saying, you know, that maybe maybe we're so we're so we're so screwed up that what you need is you need an equalizing event like a famine or or a big big natural disaster to bring to recalibrate people and get them back to thinking about thinking about what's important rather than chasing you know i don't know um uh 10 extra instagram likes for example and so i mean i have to say that i'm a little i'm a little terrified about about the desi- the, the divisiveness part because the devices was that you see, because I was hoping actually that that there would be a prevalence of of being of coming more together, which I think you could see at the beginning of this pandemic, and now a little bit less. Last word, Juan. So look, this is a small dress rehearsal for what could happen if we don't act as we, and. If you end up having a nuclear war, and it really doesn't matter if it's between Pakistan and India or China and India or Iran and somebody else or North Korea and somebody else, it it could lead to devastation on a scale that we just can't imagine. And if you didn't like sheltering in place for two months, you know, think about sheltering in place for years or decades. And global warming is something similar. It's slower. Right, it doesn't happen in nanoseconds, but global warming could displace half, two thirds of the population of the planet, and it doesn't go away because you shelter in place for a week or a month or two months or three months. So, if you didn't like what we're living now, think very carefully about those things that can truly alter your lifestyle and your life and your family and their future and your country. So that's why the we is so important. And that's why this is a lesson that we have to take to heart and not just say, well, I'm glad that's over. And now we can go back to fighting each other. Houston, we've got a problem. The question is whether we have the willingness to address it. To be continued. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Thinking for a New World podcast. We welcome your comments and please subscribe to other episodes in the podcast app of your choice. This podcast was made possible with the generous support of the Stavros Niarchos Foundation.